DHNI. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gens, and you're listening to our podcast about the relevance of literature in the 21st century. Now bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. Herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast, and also a hearty welcome to our first true episode of December Dickens. Today's episode is You Read It Right, part one of two on Great Expectations. I'm going to do two episodes on Great Expectations. The second will drop later this week, uh, over the weekend, and also two episodes on Bleak House, which will drop starting next week and through the end of December. The message here is that if you haven't started Bleak House yet and would like to, there's still time for you to get through a lot of it, maybe the whole book in congruence with our coverage of it. In other words, it's not too late to start reading. Early Dickens versus Late Dickens. An important distinction that I would like to preface the episode with has to do with the distinct categorization of Dickens' early work with Dickens' later work. The Pickwick Papers is often held as the emblem for Dickens' earlier work because of its reliance on humor and its uncomplicated plot and its very, very flat characters. On page XVII of Redhika Jones's Barnes & Noble Classics Introduction to Read Expectations, she notes that, quote, as Dickens gained in popularity, he began to put his fiction to work with social causes, unquote, calling to mind books like Oliver Twist and Nicholas Nickleby. Later on, as Jones explains, Dickens began to deal with plots that became increasingly complex in order to suit his social aspirations. And if you think about the trajectory of Dickens' books that we've read on the show, we have delved into some of his early forays into social activism, Oliver Twist comes to mind, but we've also covered books like A Tale of Two Cities, which have a very different style to them in terms of their more historical bends and their lack of humor. The novel itself. Pages XIV to XV of Jones's introduction also cue us into some history behind the novel that will come in handy for our final interpretation of the book in part two. She notes, quote, The writing of Great Expectations coincided roughly with a new phase in Dickens's life and career. He had recently left his wife, Catherine, the mother of his ten children, and had embarked on a very private affair with the young actress, Ellen Ternan. He had also discontinued his immensely popular weekly journal, Household Words, of which he was an editor and part owner after his co-publishers took issue with his decision to print a personal statement intended to refute rumors about his dissolving marriage on the front page. Now Dickens was editor of a replacement journal, All the Year Round, in which his historical novel, A Tale of Two Cities, debuted. Shortly after finishing that work, he began contributing chapters of Great Expectations to boost the circulation, which was sagging due to a lackluster serial by Charles Lever that was then running. Dickens called a staff meeting to discuss options, but he had already decided on a course of action. It was time for him to strike in. His faith in his selling power did not go unrewarded. Circulation of the weekly rebounded and remained healthy for the rest of Dickens' career. 
But his decision had an impact on the story he was envisioning before it even reached the page. According to Forster, Dickens was planning to compose his new novel, for which he already had conceived the pivotal relationship between a young boy and a convict in monthly serial form, comprising 20 numbers, which would have made it a much longer work on the scale of such previous hits as Dombey and Son and Little Dorrit. Publishing it in his weekly journal would require Dickens to reconfigure his idea into a shorter book along the lines of its predecessor, A Tale of Two Cities. The result is a novel more pruned in its plots, more limited in its cast of characters than other of Dickens' great works. It was a, quote, sacrifice Dickens told Forrester, quote, really and truly made for myself, unquote, a compromise between Dickens, the publisher, and Dickens, the writer, unquote. And what a fascinating trajectory for Dickens that is, to have had written this book at a time in his life where the relevance and maybe the irony in some cases of the title wasn't lost on a single soul. And I think this does speak to how the novel evolves as you read it, from Pitt being this very conceited, <laughs> closed-minded sort of narrator just focusing on himself and his own interactions to a very open narrator who is focusing not only on his own great expectations but on the expectations of everyone else in the novel and that change and will mark where that change is in the novel is something that's really spectacular and really gives the book its life. Great Expectations is certainly a more lighthearted novel than, say, David Copperfield or maybe unsurprisingly Bleak House, but what I didn't anticipate was how much humor is built into the novel, from Herbert's teaching Pip table manners to the great irony of the convict having set up Pip's expectations. And not only that expert dose of humor in the plot, but also the despair that sometimes comes with that humor, especially with the realization that what you expected might not always be the case. It's also a novel, as we will see as we continue on in the episode, that has a fairly complex plot that twists and turns and does somersaults sometimes, though thankfully it's not Bleak House by any means. And finally, in terms of reading the novel through, I found it to be a quick moving and incredibly enjoyable read, especially when it came to thinking about the later shifts in Pip's narration, as I just described, and as well in terms of its connections with Dickens' other work, especially to David Copperfield. Don't worry though, both of those discussions are to come in episode number two. Plot, the first stage of Pip's expectations. We start out with Pip as the adopted son of his sister, Mrs. Joe, and a blacksmith named Joe, <laughs> and uh, he is out in the marshes, and we stumble in upon a scene at the outset of the novel where he is looking at and thinking about, reflecting on, the graves of his parents and all of his other siblings, of which there were many who ended up perishing. And he runs into this convict uh, who terrifies him, just absolutely knocks his socks off in a sense. And the convict is about to die. He's, he's just really hungry and he's not in a good condition. And so Pip 
is able to steal some food and some wine from his sister to feed the convict. And he also steals a file from Joe's shop, this will come in handy later, um, to help the convict file his chain off uh, in, in these days, in these circumstances. Convicts would often have a shackle around their ankles, I believe, and the file was to lop that off. I think what's interesting is the location of the novel when we first start out, and also how different that scene is from a lot of the other scenes that we start out in in Dickens. Um, I really ended up enjoying the first couple chapters of the novel just because, while they're not scenic in the uh, vacation travel sort of sense, they're scenic in a different way and you can really feel the oppression of the marshes and how that affects all of the characters as they're in that setting. I read from page one. Ours was the marsh country, down by the river within as the river wound twenty miles of the sea. My first, most vivid and broad impression of the identity of things seems to me to have been gained on a memorable raw afternoon towards evening. At such a time I found out for certain that this bleak place overgrown with nettles was the churchyard, and that Philip Pirrup, late of this parish, and also Georgiana, wife of the above, were dead and buried, and that Alexander, Bartholomew, Abraham, Tobias, and Roger, infant children of the aforesaid, were also dead and buried, and that the dark, flat wilderness beyond the churchyard intersected with dikes and mounds and gates, with scattered cattle feeding on it, was the marshes, and that the low, leaden line beyond was the river, and that the distant, savage layer from which the wind was rushing was the sea, and that the small bundle of shivers, growing afraid of it all and beginning to cry, was Pip. What a magnificent couple opening paragraphs and I didn't start reading at the very beginning of the novel. He sort of introduces people first and starts talking in the head voice that we get used to over the novel. Um, and this is a recollection. This whole thing is a recollection of his expectations that Pip writes when he's much older, presumably a little bit more removed from the situation, for example. The next part of the novel details and starts to go to work on characterizing these characters. As I mentioned earlier um, in a quote from a source, this novel doesn't have as many characters to keep track of as maybe the average Dickens novel does. And that's a big service to the plot of the novel because the plot is so complex and is incredibly tautological, might I add. There's lots of uh, hints throughout Pip's childhood and his early adulthood that lead him back to these events on the first day that he starts mentioning on the first page with the convict. Um, and it's a really cool thing to have so much characterization at the forefront of the novel and just to have your suspicions or maybe your judgments confirmed and reconfirmed throughout the rest. And there are certainly characters who come back and surprise you quite a bit um, over the course of the novel. Um, several actually, but I think that's the genius of it is that Dickens is able to create really um, amazingly deep characters uh, throughout uh, the story because they keep the same people keep reappearing in different roles throughout. 
Pip does, a few days or maybe a week or so later, participate in a manhunt for the convict that he ends up feeding and essentially keeping alive. And he's preposterously terrified. I mean, I, I do understand the terror to some extent, but you know, he's with the police essentially when they're um, rounding up the two convicts that they're chasing down, one of them being Pip's convict. Um, and so he does participate in this hunt for the convict. So I think what's interesting is this is a microcosm of the tautology that we see in the rest of the novel with the convict and clues relating to the convict coming back again and again. Shortly after, he, Pip, starts visiting a rich old lady named Miss Havisham. And these visits come provided by the recommendation of his uncle, Pumblechook, uh, which, what a name, I love that. <laughs> um, so Pumblechook is this sort of, I picture him as a very beady-eyed, kind of lecherous kind of figure, um, very gluttonous almost as well. Um, Pumblechook and Pip do not mix well. They just don't see eye to eye on things. Pumblechook mm -hmm. um, has certain opinions about what a young boy should be doing, what he should be spending time on and money on and, and so forth. And Pip uh, is not really that enthusiastic about Pumblechook, Pumblechook and what he likes to recommend. Um, Miss Havisham is this old lady. She lives in a practically a castle, and part of this house used to be a very notable brewing facility. And so Miss Havisham comes from traditions of wealth, and she's very odd. Um, so Pip goes to the house. He is uh, charged with playing. He needs to play. Um, Miss Havisham sort of got it into her mind that she needed to see a child play, so he, there Pip is summoned into town um, in order to play, and there's this uh, young woman named Miss Estella, and Estella uh, is the adoptive daughter of Miss Havisham. Um, her and Pip have many run-ins throughout Pip's stays at Miss Havisham's. He ends up coming quite often after this first encounter, but to say the least, Miss Havisham is a spidery kind of woman. She does not see the daylight. She is just shut in in her dusty house. She uh, was engaged to be married and was looking forward to getting married and on her, on her wedding day, um, her fiance stands her up. And so she wears her wedding dress constantly. Her wedding banquet is still out on the table in a room and she has all of these um, idealizations about her own death and about people who will join her in this room that used to be her wedding banquet room and will suddenly be her morning room. So it's a little bit, it's a little bit macabre. It's a little bit gruesome, it's a little bit strange, um, but yeah, nevertheless, Miss Havisham plays a big role in Pip's expectations about his expectations, which we'll get to. 
So Pip immediately, it seems to me, um, falls in love with Estella, and it's out of this sort of boyish idealization, uh, because Estella is just so brutal to him, and she says, oh, you're so common, your fingers are stubby, and your boots are too heavy, and um, he is, you know, thinking, seems to me like he's thinking of himself so in contrast with her, of how, you know, fluent she is in her movements, how dainty and delicate and beautiful she is. So there's a lot of grief in this early relationship that we see between Pip and Estella. He starts growing up, this uh, first part of Pip's expectations, and indeed the latter parts of Pip's expectations as well, start to cover many, many years. And don't worry, I will flag <laughs> those sections as, as I have for this one. The years start to pass, Pip is becoming a young man, um, he's probably a tween right now, like 12, 13-ish. Uh, he gets indentured as a blacksmith's apprentice under his adoptive father, Joe, who is such a kind soul, by the way. Uh, it's so cool to me how Joe and his wife, Mrs. Joe, <laughs> Pip's sister, are foiled to the extent of Joe is a very almost, he's very principled. Um, in the way that this sister is, but he's very cowardly when his sister is brazen. And his sister is very loud, it seems to me that she um, will take as many pains as she likes to uh, voice her opinion, whereas Joe is a little bit more contemplative, he's a little bit more reserved in that regard. Um, so what's cool to me or what stood out to me when I was reading is that Pip loves Joe. He uh, sees Joe as, as his only ally in his young life. He relates to Joe and he regrets that Joe, much like himself, I would imagine, um, maybe he's using Joe as sort of a mirror for his thoughts about himself, but he regrets that Joe is so common and doesn't seem to stick to things the way that maybe Joe does or rather Pip does, um, maybe the way that uh, his sort of tutor Biddy does in town. Joe is not maybe as bright <laughs> as, um, as Joe wishes he would be and maybe wishes he himself in this blacksmith's position could be. There's about a period of four years that passes at this point and Pip never forgets this yearning of wanting to be a gentleman, and it's much due to his early visits at Miss Havisham's, which stopped at the time of his indentured um, papers, so signing the papers to become an apprentice for Joe. And this is a point where I'd like to just bring up a Dickensism, <laughs> um, like something very D Dickensian, which is a plot that is maybe a little bit idealistic or a plot that is maybe not the most realistic. And I do think and have experienced myself when you know things before they happen or you know you just have certain intuitions about things and certainly being a gentleman is something that Pip has a strong intuition about. Um, and he has a strong desire, it's sort of like a manifestation type deal in some ways. Um, but he nevertheless wants to be a gentleman and 
a few events happen before he gets to become one. First, his sister uh, gets assaulted in the night, um, and they find one of, uh, basically a broken manacle or a broken um, leg iron um, as the weapon. From this event, the once wrathful sister is permanently mentally disabled and needs the constant care of people trying to interpret what little she can communicate. This event is the first in the novel that starts to reframe pre-existing characters, which is a really important trait to this novel because of its limited cast. As I mentioned before, we have the once wrathful, vengeful, opinionated sister becoming completely, or at least mostly, non-communicative. We also have Biddy, who was working for another older lady in town, moving from that position and also a position as Pip's earlier school tutor. Pip wanted to um, know everything that she knew, so she taught him. <laughs> and from that position to actually taking care of Pip's household and Mr. Joe's household now. Um, and so Biddy reframing herself, um, and there's an interesting um, capacity here with uh, this Biddy character. Capacity in the sense that she's extremely versatile, and she seems like pretty much the same person um, in these different circumstances. What's different or what's changed at this point is we just get more from her, which is really lovely. She's this very, um, I don't want to say docile, but you know, a little bit homely in some senses, um, but extraordinary in the sense that she has a great empathy for people, she knows what's needed when, um, filling in gaps is really Biddy's role at this point. And also I should mention that Biddy is so good and so lovely that she really augments Pip's dissatisfaction at this point and Pip's uh, wanting to mold into the role of gentleman before he's even left by becoming this a little bit curmudgeon-y and a little bit prideful, stubborn, um, conceited. So all these traits start to become augmented in Pip as we uh, see this reframing of characters. So in a sense, I would say Pip is also reframed himself. And I should mention that that's a bit later at this point in the plot, but definitely when Biddy arrives, this is the point when he starts to become even more dissatisfied with his station. Mr. Jaggers. <laughs> so Mr. Jaggers is a minor character who we have already met. We met him at Miss Havisham's. I believe it was the second visit at Miss Havisham's when Pip is quite young. Mr. Jaggers intercepts Pip and Joe and he says they, they were at the neighborhood inn and Mr. Jaggers, you know, is uh, striking a conversation with them and he goes, I have some news for young Pip and his master. And so he goes to their personal residence. He says, Pip, you have expectations and you have come into great expectations. And Pip goes, I knew it. I knew that I was always going to be a gentleman. And Joe is just in shock at this point, poor guy. 
So Mr. Jagus outlines the term for Pip's great expectations and Pip must keep the name Pip. He's not allowed to use his full name or any other name. He has got to go by Mr. Pip. Another is that the name slash identity of the benefactor of Pip's great expectations is to remain a secret until that person decides to disclose that information. So we have this secret benefactor who's saying, I need you to give a lot of money to Pip so that he can become a gentleman, but the benefactor doesn't want Pip to know about who it is until the person decides <laughs> that they want to reveal themselves, and we will get to the big reveal in this episode. Um, the third stipulation is that Pip is not allowed, he's prohibited from making any such inquiries about or referring to his said benefactor. So he's not allowed even, you know, with Herbert, who comes later into the novel structure, um, he's really not allowed to talk about the circumstances, let's say, of the person behind his great expectations. He's not allowed to really stipulate at all about who it could be or ask around, say, about who it could be. And from this conversation, Pip automatically assumes that it's Miss Havisham. I had never read Great Expectations before. I had never seen the films, never heard anything about it. Um, I was just enjoying the ride, probably uh, similarly to a lot of you. Um, and I thought it was Estella. I, I, I legitimately thought, oh, maybe Miss Estella has given Pip his expectations. So there's a lot of these... Um, there's sort of a mystery element in the plot at this point, which I quite enjoyed. Um, and I hope you all did too. So, mystery, Mr. Jaggers ends up becoming uh, Pip's guardian. So, <laughs> Pip and Mr. Jaggers. Mr. Jaggers is this uh, spindly kind of man. He's a little bit um, over exaggerated. Like, he's very dramatic. He's very over exaggerated in the novel, just as being sort of odd um, and being grandiose in a lot of ways. Uh, one trait that will come across later in the novel is that he likes to wash his hands of people. So after he has any such meeting, even with Pip, he'll wash his hands <laughs> and he has um, constantly this smell of soap about him from washing his hands of uh, different people. He has um, a very odd uh, house and very odd way of conducting himself. He's a great orator slash lawyer slash litigator, and so he definitely has an aura of mystery about him that I think partly comes associated with Pip's expectations and the mysterious benefactor who is working with Mr. Jaggers. Um, because Mr. Jaggers is the only person for a large part of the novel that knows who the benefactor of his expectations are. And I should mention also that all of these characters are fueled through the funnel of perception from Pip. And so we're, we're getting Pip's perception of all of these really interesting dynamic characters. And I think that's part of the reason why as well, Mr. Jaggers in particular is shrouded in such mystery when maybe a, an onlooker, maybe his assistant Wemmick might view him slightly differently. So I, that's 
good to mention just because again we have this limited cast of characters that is reframed and reframed and reframed and I think spoiler alert the um the big realization that you have as you go through the novel is that the great expectations are not just for Pip they're for all of the characters Ending up this first stage of Pip's expectations, Pip gets entitled, he buys a bunch of new clothing, he vi visits his uncle P uh, Pumblechook in the city, uh, he visits Miss Havisham to say goodbye, still thinking that Miss Havisham is giving him the expectations, which he is, she's not, um, and he goes to London. So this journey to London, very uh, definitive uh, stopping place in terms of the plot, is his last gasp in terms of the first stage of his expectations. The second stage of Pip's expectations. So first off, he's in London and he meets the pale young gentleman in adult form. So the backstory to this and the reason why I didn't bring it up is because this is a super, it's a very interesting scene but a minor one in comparison in my opinion. Um, he's at Miss Havisham's one time, I believe it's the time he meets Mr. Jaggers. Um, he definitely kisses um, Miss Estella on the cheek that time as well. But he encounters a little young boy, he's very pale, he's blonde, and he's very weak. Um, and the boy says, we need to fight, let's get in a fight. And Pip absolutely demolishes this pale young gentleman. Absolutely. And Pip is so impressed because the little boy keeps getting up again and up again and up again, even though he's all bloody, he's got bruises starting to form. Pip is really just beating the life out of this kid. And uh, he, you know, has a fair fight with him, leaves the victor, and he's, you know, sort of confounded at the whole thing because Pip himself is quite young and quite scrawny scrawny in quotes seems like to me at least uh with the way that he's describing himself and uh years later when pip has come into his own expectations he meets this pale young gentleman again and this pale young gentleman his name is herbert pocket um and pockets are going to be a, really a feature of this second stage and Herbert Pocket uh, becomes Pip's best friend. And uh, he is the son of Pip's future tutor, uh, Mr. Pocket. And uh, he's really this um, incredible character because he's so kind and he's so, it seems to me, chivalrous and um, just someone who works really well with Pip to bounce ideas off of. Um, but that also has an ugly side, as we'll see. and how they could encourage them, each other rather, to do rather bad things, um, getting into debt namely. So he, Pip, ends up visiting the Pocket's house and there's, I think there's seven children um, at the Pocket house and the way that Pip describes them is hilarious. It's, they, they tumble. They, they're not really brought up, they just tumble. Um, and it's this amazingly hilarious sort of frivolous scene where the family is in the yard and Pip, you know, strolls up with Herbert and 
um, Mrs. Pocket is, you know, sitting, reading, and she ends up having a stepping stool underneath her dress. So any child, uh, nurse, whomever, uh, who tries to approach her stumbles over the um, little step stool underneath her dress and so it's you know the children are just tumbling this uh, sense of organized chaos so to speak and it's a it's a really bubbly scene um, and the first uh, real scene with you know a lot of people very boisterous um, in the novel what's interesting to me is that Dickens does not take as many pains to focus on the actual education in this novel as he does in novels like Oliver Twist. And I'm thinking specifically of the connections between Steerforth and Oliver Twist and Pip. And they have, they both have um, the article in the show notes about Dickens's early novels. Um, notes that they both have this rather ambiguous quality and I think that ambiguity that ambiguity really comes out in this educational system in both novels um, but yeah there's there isn't the focus on education and certainly I, under, I understand why it's not about Pip's education as a gentleman or his treatment in that education there's no social outcry in that regard um, it is about Pip's expectations and the expectations eventually of the other characters um, but still, I was surprised. I, I had almost um, taken it to be a sort of Dickensism <laughs> that we get a lot about um, education and what it's like uh, to be in the tutorage of Mr. Pocket. And indeed, we don't get much. Um, what we do get is this um, image of the other two pupils of Mr. Pocket who are also living in the Pocket house. Uh, Drummle and Startop. Drummle uh, will come up again and again a bit more frequently than Star uh, Startop. Um, Drummle is a very gray gentleman. I almost think of him as like Nosferatu or some like almost mythical um, kind of gentleman. He sort of stalks around and he's very glum and Pip takes him not to be so bright either. He ends up attending a dinner, uh, actually, to Mr. Jagger's house, and that's one of my favorite scenes in the novel because they are they all start arguing, um, and especially Drummle is um, the main point of attention of the whole conversation because Mr. Jagger's is obsessed with him. He really likes uh, Drummle uh, to the surprise of maybe everyone. Startop. We don't get much from, as I said, but he is sort of a mama's boy. He has the features of a woman, sort of soft, and he's a cheerful fellow. But again, I think Pip, uh, this is maybe one aspect of some of Pip's character changes with regard to his great expectations. He doesn't view Startop as so, so bright either. Now, Mr. Jaggers has a an assistant. His name is Wemmick. Pip is invited to go to Wemmick's castle at Walworth. Um, this is uh, right before the dinner with Mr. Jaggers. So the, the series of events here is, you know, he goes to live with the Pockets. He goes to Wemmick's castle, then goes to Mr. Jaggers' estate after the day after. 
So Wemmick's castle. Wemmick is a really interesting character. I, I think he might be my favorite character actually in the novel just because he's so, um, <laughs> he reminds me of like Tweedledee or Tweedledum sort of. I know I'm making a lot of mythical character references. I think that the grandiose nature of a lot of Dickens's descriptions in <laughs> this novel sort of lends itself to that. I could definitely see uh, instead of a historical remaking of uh, Great Expectations, sort of a fantastical remaking of it. <laughs> Just because, again, a lot of the descriptions are so fantastical. In any case, Wemmick is the gatekeeper, so to speak, of Mr. Jagger's business. So he's the one that handles the finances and Pip has to deal with him. Mostly because Pip goes through money so bizarrely fast, um, especially considering his upbringing. He, adjusts to the gentleman lifestyle very, very quickly. Wemmick's castle is brilliant. It's this magical place, very much like Disneyland in the way it's described. There's all these ingenious contraptions everywhere that just sort of boggle Pip and t throw him up and sort of toss him into um, the, the fantasy of Walworth um, and the castle. And so Wemmick has a very distinct separation between his work life and his home life. And that becomes quite important for a lot of the interactions and advice that uh, Pip and Wemmick end up sharing together. At Walworth, there's this drawbridge that uh, Wemmick ends up, you know, walking over. Um, it's just splendid, the number of weird contraptions that end up being slightly useful, slightly maybe not, <laughs> not sure, they seem pretty useful, um, at Walworth. It's, it's incredible. And so Wemmick has, uh, what he calls the aged at the castle of Walworth, and it's this old man who is basically deaf. You're just supposed to listen to him and nod vigorously as you speak with him. Um, he's quite old, he's 80, 81, something like this. Um, and there's this cannon that goes off every night um, at Walworth, and he's, yeah, it's a big cannon shot, basically, at a certain time. And it's the aged's favorite time because he can hear the cannon shot. It's so loud that even he can hear it. So yes, also a wonderful scene in this second stage. There's also a visit from Joe early on. I only mention this to sort of flag for you all how different Pip and Joe's interactions are after Pip receives his expectations. Um, and that's partly because Joe is in an environment that he's not comfortable with, a very, you know, pompous, hoity-toity kind of environment. Whereas Pip, He's grown accustomed to a lot of the wealth and the amazing food and things like this. Um, and he is himself noticing how much Joe sticks out, even with his attempts to be formal and his attempts to be clean. Um, and so, yeah, the, there's just a, a gap um, that's a bit widening at this point in the novel between Joe and Pip, and a lot of it is because of this character shift of Pip. My reading of it is that Joe is a very constant character throughout the novel, at least thus far in our episode. 
and Pip is the one that's changing and as a result of that change their relationship, their interactions change as well. Pip then gets summoned as it were to see Miss Estella on the way there back to his hometown from London. Pip sees the guy who gave him a two pound note earlier in the story. He's kind of this creepy guy that he and Joe encounter at the neighborhood inn, not Mr. Jaggers, another guy. <laughs> Again, lots of little convolutions to the plot that really make it full and interesting along the way. Um, this two pound guy, creepy guy, is also a convict and is talking about Pip's convict and his relationship with Pip's convict. And that is that the convict was hired by Pip's convict to give Pip the two pound note. Following the meeting, Miss Estella does indeed move to London, essentially with the purpose of meeting people and being introduced to society at large. She ends up moving in with this old woman and her daughter who are very peculiar, but they have a good standing in society. They know a lot of people and Estella makes uh, it her case that she becomes part of that household. Interestingly also, this very sweet relationship, historically sweet, between Estella and Miss Havisham, it seems like they really understand each other, that relationship begins to erode and Estella begins to rebel against a lot of the odd things about Miss Havisham and her upbringing under Miss Havisham's care um, as an adopted daughter. Pip notices this as well. There's a couple arguments, in fact, that uh, Pip witnesses on his uh, accompanying Miss Estella back to visit to Miss Havisham's, uh, which she indeed visits quite often. Pip and Herbert, at the end of this part of the second part of his expectations, Pip and Herbert start getting into tremendous debt. They sort of encourage each other and egg each other on in this regard. Herbert it seems to me that Pip thinks that he is more fortunate than Herbert, um, i.e. that he has more money, maybe more opportunity than Herbert. Um, Herbert isn't really working or doing much of note right now. He's sitting on something, waiting for an opportunity to come, which Pip indeed eventually arranges for Herbert. The pacing is kind of quick at the end of the section um, as Pip's sister, Mrs. Joe, dies. So he returns home for the funeral. Um, there's a lot of really touching scenes uh, with Pip coming back to his hometown and giving his sister a dignified funeral. And eventually when Pip turns 21 around this time, he gets control of his own finances separate from Mr. Jaggers, which to me was very alarming because of the amount of debt and things that he is in currently. Um, and he gets, I believe, a 500 pound note per year or something of this regard. Um, so he gets control of his own finances. He's 21. Um, there's a chapter near the end where he just talks about Estella and how he's sort of torturing himself over Estella because he feels that he's been set apart and made a gentleman so that he can be with Estella. That's his theory about his own expectations. Um, unfortunately, that's not an issue as we come to a close in this section. A few years pass, Pip turns 23, and shortly thereafter, his convict returns. 
and his convict says, Pip, I am your benefactor. I am the person who set up your expectations. I love to think of people reading this for the first time in the periodical, just aghast and thinking to themselves, what? And Pip doing the same in the novel, for sure. Um, and what a tremendous plot twist <laughs> this is, that Pip's convict has become a wealthy Australian sheep herder and sends every dime he earns so that Pip can be brought up a gentleman. Alright, to end the episode today, I wanted to take a quick look at a passage and do a deep dive into the passage. We have page 289 and 291. We'll start with the passage on 289. It struck me that Wemmick walked among the prisoners much as a gardener might walk among his plants. Equally in his stopping at the bars and attending to anxious whisperers, always singly, Wemmick, with his post office in an immovable state, looked at them while in conference, as if he were taking particular notice of the advance they had made, since last observed, towards coming out in full blow at their trial. 291 talking about Wemmick, again. With that, he looked back and nodded at this dead plant, then cast his eyes about him in walking out of the yard, as if he were considering what other pot would go best in its place. The reason why I love these passages is what an interesting connection of Wemmick walking through the state prison on errand for Mr. Jaggers and perusing about the prison as if he were a gardener tending after his plants. And I think this really gives us the sense of command and agency that Wemmick has over his career and again highlights the stark contrast between Wemmick uh, at work and Wemmick at home, when Wemmick is very whimsical and very indulgent, whereas here uh, Wemmick is very staunch and he is unwilling to yield to a lot of the prisoners' complaints or maybe uh, requests of him. I also love how this metaphor is extended and is extended across several pages and it's a metaphor that you can tell Pip is quite attached to, and so this connection with the narrator, um, when the narrative and the narrator at this point um, in the plot is very interesting to me as well. Indeed, this is a point in the narrative, one of the first actually, where Pip is so keenly noticing someone other than himself, or maybe Joe, he notices Joe quite often as well, um, or Estella, but he rarely extends himself out to these minor characters like Herbert, like Wimmick or Jaggers. And this is one of the parts where he is selflessly giving another character attention in his narrative. And this has started happening more and more at this point in the novel, and I think this is a great distinction between the first part of the narration and the second part, where we shift our focus a bit, not on Pip uh, in that David Copperfield-esque kind of way, but we start to look outward towards a lot of the other characters, events, things that are going on uh, in Pip's world, but outside of him. Alright, this was 
a long episode, but a good one. Uh, I appreciate y'all's support. I know I fell off the podcasting bandwagon for a little bit here. <laughs> I needed a break. Um, but we will return very shortly with the second episode on Great Expectations. We'll finish it out. We'll do some theorizing about Pip and David, Pip and Steerforth. Lots there, you guys. I am so grateful for your support over this holiday. Make sure to check out the links in the description. We are donating everything we earn to the Mira Foundation for the Blind between Thanksgiving and December 31st, so it's certainly not too late to hop on Patreon and get your literary postcard directly from myself. Alright y'all, see you soon. If you enjoyed the discussion and would like to hear more from us, there is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website, relevanceofliterature.com, under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalogue of episodes. We also have a couple of open surveys that you can find through the links in the description, so if you have three minutes while you're waiting in line somewhere, we would very much appreciate your feedback on our show. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode, and we'll see you next time.